You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 16. That's the same place I asked you to open your Bible last week. We're going to be continuing a bit of a narrative story that's preserved for us here in Acts chapter 16 as we continue to think about the theme, lift up your eyes. That's our theme. We've been learning that the Lord wants to do some vision correction surgery on us. First of all, to lift our eyes to see where our help comes from. It comes from the Lord. We learned that from Psalm 121. And then we saw that Jesus used that same phrase when he was sending out his disciples, his missionaries. He wanted their eyes to be lifted up to see the harvest that was white, was ready to be brought in. So vertical eyes, lift up your eyes, produces missional eyes. And we've got a task to do as missionaries. Last week we looked at this definition of a missionary. A missionary is every Christian sent every day into every place where Jesus is not worshipped as Lord of every person. Are you a missionary? Are you a Christian? Now see, there was a greater response to the second one than the first. If you're not saying you're a missionary, stop saying you're a Christian. It's the same thing. There's work to be done. There's a task to be done. So to be missional, the adjective, means that we adopt the daily posture of a missionary, which means we live in view, eyes wide open to the unfinished task of the great commission. So we're going to see four, we're going to see five questions here this morning that I'm going to ask you from this narrative of scripture. Uh, The first question is simply this. Do you see the rich girl? Did you see any rich girls this week? You say, Trent, that's a little offensive. Why would you say that? Because that's what we're about to see right here in Acts chapter 16. Now, just by way of review, remember last week, Paul, the greatest missionary ever, got this creepy midnight vision. Okay, it's like um, he sees this man standing in front of him and the man says, would you come over to Macedonia and help us. And immediately Paul packed his bags, he got on a ship, and he went in the direction of Macedonia. That's where we pick up the story in verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia. A Roman colony and we remained in this city some days. It doesn't tell us how many days. But if you were to think about this Macedonian call, first of all, it, he saw a vision of a man, a man from Macedonia, which is what it tells us back up in verse 9. When he gets off the boat, who do you think he was expecting to meet at the dock? So he's looking around. Anybody got like a Apostle Paul sign? You know, looking for that guy because I was the one that sent the vision, right? But he doesn't see him. As a matter of fact, apparently it takes him several days to even kind of get oriented. Now he's probably thinking, why did the Lord send me here? And did I just eat some bad pizza a couple of days ago? And did I even arrive in the right place? And he's probably thinking about going home. But then he makes a decision in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. 
How many of you think by a riverside would be a great place of prayer? I think you could do some pretty awesome praying by a riverside, better than, you know, the chaos of your home or whatever. So he goes to the place of prayer. He's probably, what do you think he's praying about? Lord, why did you send me here? Lord, is there anybody here that you sent me to? Where's this guy that sent me the vision? That's probably what he's praying about. So while he's praying, notice, we sat down and spoke to the women who had come to gather. Paul turns the place from talking to God to a place where he starts talking about God. He was probably looking for a man from Macedonia, but he starts talking to the women. The, the call didn't say who he was going to meet. It just was a man from Macedonia that says, come over and help us. And remember, if you look at the end of verse uh, 10, it says, we concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. It doesn't say him. It says them. That's what it means to be a missionary. Because Paul was going to talk to a person that was completely different than him. Paul was a man. These were women. Paul was Jewish. They were Gentile. Paul was not rich, but we're about to find out the woman he's going to talk to is rich. So listen, if you are a white suburban male of average income and average height, and you are looking to be a missionary only to white suburban males with average income and average height, you are going to miss a boatload of people that God wants you to be a missionary to. Paul could have sat there and prayed, God, would you please send me somebody to, to share the gospel with? God, would you just please open the doors of somebody? God, just send somebody. And if all he's looking for is somebody that looks like him, he would have missed the answer to his prayer that was right in front of him. So it says that one of these women, verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is what we call a divine appointment. We like to talk about divine appointments. Anybody have an appointment book? Any appointments on your calendar this week? Do you have a busy week? You know who you're going to meet and where you're going to meet and what you're going to talk about. And you have some appointments. Well, there are some appointments that you have this week that you don't even know about yet. And they're not on your appointment book, but they are on God's. There are people that God is going to put you in line with that He wants you to have a gospel conversation with. And if you don't lift up your eyes, you're not going to make it to your divine appointment. So who will God send you to? Sometimes He'll send you to the rich girl. They're out there. And they're just like Lydia. What do we know about Lydia? Interestingly, one of the things that we find out about her is that she was, verse 14 says, a seller of purple. 
Can you buy purple? I mean, do you go to the mall and buy purple? Yes, you do, as a matter of fact. You do because it, it, it's in the form of a dye. It's usually chemically or synthetically you know, based, and you just you put a garment in it, it turns purple. Or some of you actually put purple on your face. It's called makeup. And now, all kinds of different ways to do purple around here. How many of you have purple on today? Raise your hand if you've got purple on. Be proud of the purple people in church. Look at these people. Now, lift your, just keep your hand in the air. Do these people look any more rich than you do? Do these people? No. No, it's just average people. But listen, average people didn't have access to purple in Bible times. Lydia wasn't average. Lydia was rich. Now, they didn't have chemicals or synthetic compounds to make purple with. So how do you think you made purple clothes back in the day? I did a little research, and I found out that there is actually a species of sea critters, snails, that produce a purple secretion. And you, if you wanted to sell purple, you actually had to go get the purple from the snail. The snail didn't volunteer it, so you had to milk the snail. I don't know if they had like, here in Indiana, we're familiar with milking dairy farms. I don't know if they had milking snail farms back there. And I found out that it produces such a small amount, you needed 24,000 snails to produce one ounce of purple dye. So Lydia was a seller of purple. I don't know if that means she had a snail farm somewhere. Maybe she had married a snail farmer. He was in manufacturing. She was in sales and marketing. And together they made a great team. And they probably had this great business. They sold purple together. She was a successful businesswoman. And Paul engages her in this conversation. Another thing that's interesting about this is the place that she went to sell the purple. Where was this conversation taking place? The place of prayer. Did you know that some people come to church for the wrong purpose? Did you know that some people are so committed to being good salesmen in order to increase their sales, they go to where the people are. And do you know where the people of Michigan are on Sunday morning? They're in church. And so there are a lot of business people that go to church for the wrong reason. They're trying to sell something. I don't know if that was Lydia's motive, but I do find it interesting. It could be that she was a very compassionate woman that felt sorry for the way that all the Christians dressed in their drab, colorless clothing. And so she was maybe there to provide a little joy in their life. And, and so she shows up. Now, again, we're speculating a little bit, but if she's a seller of purple, how do you think she sold it? How do you think she was dressed when she showed up? How many of you think she was dressed in, like, gray? No. What, what was she wearing? She's probably wearing purple. She probably has some purple eyeliner on. And she's there modeling for what she wants other people to buy from her. Right? So, she is a very rich woman. 
And it also tells us, tells us this that's very interesting in the story. It says she was a worshiper of God. Good news, bad news. Good, good for you, Lydia. You're a worshiper of God. We know she was a Gentile. She's from Thyatira. And so she wasn't Jewish. She didn't, she didn't grow up as a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that whole story that we've learned about in the Old Testament. But she probably was introduced to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from a Jewish believer. And so she probably had some Old Testament knowledge. She probably knew that there was one God. And to whatever degree that she could, she was a worshiper of God. Did you know that some salesmen will do anything to increase their sales? Even pray? Maybe she showed up at the place of prayer because sales were down that month. Like, Jesus, would you increase the sales? That's not a, it's not, it's not a bad prayer. It's not the best prayer. It's not the best motive to pray. So we don't know exactly why she was there, but we know that she had some knowledge of God and she had some means to riches. But the Lord had not yet opened her heart. Do you see it there in verse 14? It says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by the Apostle Paul. As pretty and cute as these babies were up here, they've got a problem with their hearts. Do you know what it is? They're closed to the Lord. You say, how can you say that? They're so cute and so precious. Yeah, but they are closed to the heart of God until or unless God opens their heart. The same is true with you. You were born with a closed heart. The heart of man is sinful. It's it's allergic to God and, and attracted to sin. That's what the scripture tells us about the human heart. And until God opens the heart, you can try all your man-made attempts to worship God and sell purple, but you're not going to have a genuine relationship with the Lord. I'm praying for some of you this morning that God would open your heart. Did you know that a preacher can't open a heart? That's the only reason I could sleep last night. If I thought that 16 or 1700 people were coming to hear me talk to them about God this morning, and it was my responsibility to pry open the heart, I would be psychotic. Did you know that there are some preachers in some churches that are committed to trying to pry open the heart? And that's why they water down the gospel or that's why they try different techniques or tricks to try to get you to believe something that you really don't believe. But they want to kind of put it out there in a way that it would be attracted. Listen, I know that your heart is closed and you're not listening to anything I have to say. And you're certainly not going to respond to it unless God opens your heart. And that's what needed to happen for Lydia. Is your heart open? I don't know about you, but I've noticed that... uh, We're living in a day where it just seems like hearts are more closed than ever before to the heart of God. Have you noticed that? When I first became a Christian and uh, I got um, a passion to share the gospel, I took an evangelism training class at my church. It was called Evangelism Explosion. And it was kind of a 17-week, you know, training course on how to, you know, put some words together and maybe some Bible verses and kind of have a train of thought and starting gospel conversations. And, And they trained us to start a gospel conversation with two questions. Here were the first questions. Number one, if you were to die today, do you believe that you would go to heaven? 
Number two, if you were to die today and you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now, I've had hundreds of conversations started around those two questions. But I just don't know that those are the right questions anymore. Do you know why? Because those questions assume a lot of things. Number one, it it assumes that people actually have a consciousness of God. Number two, it assumes that people know they're going to die. People don't, they live with this concept of immortality. Number three, it kind of threatens them like I'm going to kill them on the spot. It's a little defensive, you know, like if you were to die right now, you know, would you hold a gun to my head and like make a decision for Christ right now? No, that's not our team. That's the other team. So that's not, the other thing, it assumes that they understand that they're going to be, a, they're going to be held accountable before God for their behavior. And number five, it assumes that they understand there is a place of separation from God in the afterlife if you even believe in an afterlife at all. I don't even know if those are the right questions anymore in a post-Christian culture. So the the questions that people have to to grapple with are, are more serious than that. Maybe the better question is, do you believe in a transcendent God who has spoken through His Word? Do you believe that your behavior has actually angered God? He's not a fan. And do you believe that the only way you can be made right with this God is through a mediator, His Son, Jesus, who died on a cross in your place to actually divert the anger of God to Him so you wouldn't have to experience it? Do you, do you believe, and that this guy actually rose from the dead. Maybe that's the best question. Do you believe that God can make dead things live? And so those are questions. I don't know if those are the right questions either. I just know that we have to understand that we're living in a culture that doesn't speak our language. And in order to be missional, we have to get to the heart of the issue. Our responsibility is to open our mouths. God's responsibility is to open the heart. What does God have to open the heart of a rich girl to? Think about this. Um, You think about Lydia's heart. What, What was going on in her heart? Well, we know she was rich, but God had to open her heart to the poverty of her soul. Jesus talked about rich people. Do you know what Jesus said about rich people? If you're a rich people, you're not gonna like this. Jesus said rich people um, have a hard time going to heaven. It's harder for rich people to go to heaven. By the way, if you're sitting there thinking, I'm so glad I'm not a rich people. (laughs) Compared to who? You realize that you are part of the 2% richest people on the planet who have ever lived just because of where you were born. You're a rich people. And you're going to have a hard time getting to heaven because of all the stuff you've got. Jesus said it's harder for a rich person to go to heaven than to go through the eye of a needle. Why is that? Jesus later taught us it's impossible to serve both God and money. Do you know why? Because both God and money make the same promise. Both promise to save you if you will serve them. And yet money is lying. And the reason we know that is because even the rich people in this room, they're thinking, I just need a little more so I can be happy. If I just had a little more, I would be safe and secure. 
You never get to the point where money fulfills its promise. God, on the other hand, offers you significance, security, and salvation if you will submit your life to Him. And so God has to convince you that your money can't do what God can do. God has to open your heart to see that even though you have riches in the bank, you have nothing in your heart that can purchase and pay the debt of your sin. God has to open your heart. God had to open Lydia's heart to the fact that she was destitute before God, even though she had all of these riches. And so we need to understand the same thing is true for the people that we're, we're, we're talking to. And we do a lot of things. We talk a lot. The church talks a lot about things that we should do for the down and the out and those that are disadvantaged and poor. But listen, we are missing missional opportunities if we don't go after those who are advantaged in this world. Because according to Jesus, they got a harder time getting to heaven than the rest of us. And so we need to understand we have to say the words of the gospel to fill a hole in their hearts that money can never fill. How do you know when God's opening a rich person's heart? They start to feel an unexplainable emptiness. That even though I've got everything the world could offer, it still doesn't satisfy that's who you're looking for to go and have a gospel conversation with. God has to open the heart not only to the poverty of the soul, God has to open the heart to the exclusivity of worship. The Bible says she was a worshiper of God. Whatever, to whatever degree she was a worshiper of God, she wasn't an exclusive worshiper to God. As a matter of fact, maybe she was going through the motions of her prayers and her practice of religion, and yet she'd never been introduced to the one who was God, Jesus Christ. Not until Paul opened his mouth and shared about Jesus did she have the opportunity to bridge the distance between her and this God that she worshipped way out there. Let me ask you this question. Even though the Bible says she was a worshiper of God before she heard about Jesus... Now that she heard about Jesus, if she'd rejected Jesus, would she have gone to heaven or hell? Hell. Why? Because she rejected the very one who was God. Whatever her false understanding is of the God that she was worshipped, it wasn't the accurate God in the person of Jesus Christ. I am burdened for so many people that maybe grew up religious. You grew up with sacraments and catechisms and forms and ceremonies of religion. You walked through all these religious ornate ceremonies because you thought you were worshiping God. And yet, if you think that somehow any of that is a substitute for the only thing that could save your soul, Jesus on a cross in my place as a substitute for my sin, if you're taking that and all the ceremonial religion, it's false worship. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that brings salvation to the soul, the exclusivity of worship. God's got to open your heart to that. And if he opens your heart to the only one who can save, you will reject everything else that you think can save you. God has to open your heart to the filthiness of sin. Did you notice what happened after she paid attention to what Paul was saying? The very next report we have 
And after that, she was baptized. Now, I want you to imagine this, okay? She's already by a riverside. And she's wearing purple. Let me ask you a question. Most rivers that you've seen, do you think of purple? Do you think of clear? What do you think of? Brown, dirty, filthy water. Here is this rich girl in this rich outfit, this beautiful, costly garment. Externally, she was beautiful. But God opened her heart to the filthiness on the inside. And maybe for the first time in her life, she saw the ugliness of her sin before God. And she repented of it. She trusted Christ for salvation. She was internally clean. But it says she was baptized. A lot of churches have a lot of crazy ideas about baptism. Listen, it's so simple in the Scripture. In order for us to demonstrate that we are a follower of Christ... The Lord calls us as Christians, the first act of obedience for a Christian is baptism. What is baptism? I've explained this before, but you're telling the story of Jesus who lived, died for our sin, was buried, and raised to new life. And what you say when you're baptized is like, I'm with that guy, that guy that was buried, raised, that's me, that's my team, I'm on that team. I want everybody to know it. I don't care who knows it. I, that's, and you're telling a second story. You're telling this. I was alive, but I realized that because of my sin, my sin killed me. What do you do with a person who's been killed? Bury them. But good news is I got brand new life in Jesus. We're starting over. You're telling your story. And we get to do that in the dirtiest water we can find. I don't know what you think it looks like up here. It's kind of gross. And that's good because you're thinking, because the default thing in the human mind is thinking that somehow water washes sin. Water doesn't wash sin. There's only one liquid that washes sin. That's blood, blood of Jesus. And it's not on the outside. It's on the inside that your problem is. Your problem is a heart, nothing on the outside. You can't wash away anything on the outside thinking it's going to affect anything on the inside. Lydia understands this. She says, I want to be baptized. But do you see what she does? She goes down beautiful on the outside and she comes up beautiful on the inside because God has washed away the filthiness of her sin on the inside. Now listen, be careful. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't wash sin. It is the external expression of something that God does when he opens the heart. Have you been baptized? Or have you just gone through the religious ceremony? Maybe you were baptized when you were a little kid and all that stuff. As a believer, that God has opened your heart. Have you been baptized as a way of demonstrating that you have understood your sin is filthy, your worship must be exclusive, and your soul needs to be filled because it's, it's enslaved with poverty? i got a second question for you. Oh, before, before I get to the second question, uh, there's one thing I forgot to say. Look down at verse 15. The last thing it says here, after she was baptized and her household... She urged us saying, if you judge me to be faithful in the Lord, come to my house and stay there. And she prevailed on us. Do you know what happens when God opens the heart of a rich person? They open their home and they open their hands and they say, God, you want something I've got? 
I mean, you, you've, you've given me a lot of resources here. Hey, you want some of that? Do you know what Lydia did? She became the one that started funding the ministry of the missionaries. You, you may have thought, you're kind of talking derogatory to the rich people. No, no, no. We like rich people around here. We, we think you should make all the money you possibly can. As long as your heart is open and your hands are open, we got big vision around here. We might need some more square footage around here someday, and it's expensive. So we need the rich people who have hearts that are open to God, who will open their hands to God and say, let's all get busy being missional with the message of the gospel. And by the way, you're all rich. So are your hands open? Is your heart open? If your hands aren't open, it's a demonstration your heart's not open. So here's the second thing. Not only do you see the rich girl, do you see the poor girl? There's another girl in the story. He's like, when are we going to get to this man that gave the Macedonian call? Well, he's next week. But look at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, I love it. They went back to the place of prayer because they scored the first time. They're like, that's brutal. Let's go there. Fruitful. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. Now, this girl could not have been more different than Lydia. First of all, Lydia was known. This girl was anonymous. We don't even have her name. As I've been studying it this week, I named her. Her name is now Linda. Okay, so we have Lydia in the first story. I have Linda in the second story. I have no idea what her name was, but I call her Linda. So Linda is a slave girl. Rich or poor? Resources or no resources? No resources. She was a slave girl, and that was not her, being poor was not her biggest problem. This was her biggest problem. Um, she had a spirit of divination. Um, that's not great. Um, what does that mean? Now, we're reading our English translations here, and this is really hard to translate, but if you read the original language, this is what it says. It says, she had a spirit of Python. I don't, I don't know. If you're a single guy in here and you're looking for a girl and she's got a spirit of Python, you probably need to keep looking, all right? I mean, that's not a great trait, I don't think, uh, in, in, in a woman. But she, so, so here's the thing. She, she was from a Greek culture. Greek had all these, you know, polytheistic religion and gods. And they had this, they had this god, they called him the Oracle of Delphi. And Oracle of Delphi had a temple. And it was said that the Delphi temple was guarded by pythons. And so they interpreted her being out of control, her speaking in strange noises, and her being really annoying as having a spirit of Python, which is like the Pythons have her. That's that's what she was known for. Now, we know biblically, through the lens of Scripture and through the lens of the Spirit, we know what she really had. She she was demonized. She, she, She had evil spirits that were controlling her behavior. Does that sound a little spooky? You're like, it's about to get weird in here. It's like... Do you think that still happens in 2017? Sure does. I mean, there's only two teams, right? We have the Holy Spirit. How many of you are pro-Holy Spirit? Okay, good. That's our team. That's our team, Holy Spirit. And if you're, if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, there's only one other time, one other side. Those are evil spirits controlled by Satan himself. And so she had those influences in her life. All right? Now listen, um, the more you open yourself to things of the spirit world that are not Holy Spirit controlled, the more susceptible you are to being controlled by 
an evil spirit. Okay? So if you're into like horoscopes and tarot cards and palm reading, there's a palm reader in Granger. Why do we need a palm reader in Granger? I don't know. So you have all that, and if like you're really into the darkness scene and like horror movies and what's coming up at the end of October, and you're just like, oh, I just can't wait. There's a lot. You're like, that, that is not our team. Okay? That is not our team. So we are pro Holy Spirit people around here. She was not yet, so she was controlled, influenced by these demons. And it says also that um, she brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Somehow through the influence of these demons, she was telling the future. Verse 17 says, she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. True or false? True. So what's the problem? I mean, that sounds like a pretty good introduction. Next week, when Ben introduces me, now coming to bring us God's Word today is a servant of the Most High God who bring to you the way of salvation, Trent Griffith. Let's all stand and applaud. I'm like, I could, I, I could, I could follow that, right? So what's Paul have a problem with? It goes on, verse 18. And this she kept doing. Many days, over and over and over. These men are the. These men are the. What? Let me say that right. These men are servants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. These men are servants of the Most High God. They proclaim to you the way of salvation. How many of you think that would get a little annoying? Yeah. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what happened. It says um, she kept doing this many days, and Paul, having become greatly. I've never been more a fan of Paul. Having become greatly annoyed. I'm so glad we get to see the dark side of Paul in this passage right here. As a preacher of the gospel, I can sympathize with Paul. When you are trying to preach the gospel, and there is a baby that's preaching something else. Or, worst of all, there is a cell phone that rings. And the person doesn't know how to turn the thing off. (laughs) Or worse, they answer the phone. (laughs) And continue the conversation. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's just therapeutic for me. Just to, I'm just... I have a high view of scripture around here. I just didn't want to take a moment to lose that moment. So, Paul, having become greatly annoyed turned and said to the spirit, notice he doesn't say this to the girl, he says it to the spirit. He wasn't annoyed by the girl, he was annoyed by the spirit. And he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. I have resisted the temptation to cast the demon out of the cell phone (laughs) so far. Pray for me. So here we have this girl. She's a poor girl. She is being exploited. She is being used. She is being abused. This was human trafficking. It's likely that she was sexually abused and taken advantage of. These men that were using her for gain were her pimps. And this was an awful, tragic reality. Do you see her? She's out there. 
She doesn't have resources. She doesn't have money. She doesn't have freedom at all. She's owned. Unlike Lydia, who was the owner, Linda is owned and controlled. And God has to open her heart too. God has to open the heart of someone who is poor. They need to have their heart open to the cruelty of their owner. So many people that are used and abused and controlled and exploited think this is the best I can do. And yet she needed to understand she could upgrade her owner. By the way, you don't have an option of whether or not you're owned. You do have a choice as to who your owner will be. You're going to serve somebody. Somebody wrote a song about that. You're going to be a slave to somebody. You're either going to be a slave to sin and you're going to be abused by it. You're going to be manipulated by it. You're going to be exploited by it. Or you're going to be a slave to God who has nothing but the best interest for you and for him, for his glory and your good. That's why he gives you commands. God has to open hearts to the authority of the most high God. It's an interesting fact that she uses that specific phrase. She could have used all kinds of different phrases to describe God. God has a lot of different titles. And she could have had the, the most gracious God. She could have said the sovereign God, the God of the universe. She uses a very specific phrase, the most high God. Where else do we see that in Scripture? Isaiah chapter 14 gives us a, cl- a glimpse into eternity past. And we see... Lucifer, the worship leader in heaven, gets tired of directing all the glory and the praise to the Most High God. And so he says, in Isaiah 14, 14, says, I will be like the Most High God. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus is confronted by a demon spirit who's possessing a, a girl. And that spirit says to Jesus, why are you tormenting us Son of the Most High God. And so there's something about this idea of God being most and highest and best that annoys Satan. He wants that place. And he wants that place in your life. He wants you in some place to say in your life, I will be God. I will not allow God to rule. I will not allow God to reign. I will be God, and no one's going to tell me what to do. You ain't the boss of me. That's what Satan does. That's the the spirit of divination right there. It's like that's not just reserved for some psycho, demon-possessed man in Las Vegas. That is on us if we don't resist it. God has to open hearts to the power of Jesus' name. Notice when Paul cast that demon out, he was very specific. And he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Why did he he invoke Jesus' name? Because Jesus' name reminded that demon of Jesus' work on the cross where Satan was defeated and Jesus crushed the head of Satan and by his resurrection proved to be the most high God. And Paul knew Paul didn't have a right to be obeyed, but Jesus did. 
God has to open your heart to the power that is available to those that are enslaved, that are in bondage of sin, even past abuses by those that have owned you. And God has to open hearts to the way of salvation. These are servants of the Most High God that proclaim to you the, not a, the one way of salvation, namely through the sacrificial atoning work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Those are gospel conversations. And there are people out there that have been exploited and abused and used that find those things hard to believe. And we offer them the way out. Third question. Do you see the universal problem? As much as Lydia and Linda were different, they had the same basic need. Both of them had spiritual bankruptcy. Even though Linda had all the riches in the world, she couldn't buy her way to salvation. Even though Linda had nothing, she was a slave, she was spiritually bankrupt. That was her bigger problem. And both of them were in spiritual bondage. Lydia was enslaved to making a greater sale, building her business, getting more money, manufacturing more purple. And Linda was enslaved by her owner. Do you see God's remedy? We're introduced to the way of salvation. Listen, this is the remedy. This is what you have to catch. God's remedy is to send missionaries to rich girls and poor girls as servants of the Most High God, proclaiming the way of salvation, no matter whether they are rich or poor, men or women, boys or girl, Gentile or Jew. Protestant or Catholic, there is only one way to salvation. It is through Jesus Christ. That is the only remedy for sin. I got one more question. Do you see yourself? I've been talking to the missionaries that I am about to kick out of here to go talk to the poor girls and the, and the rich girls. But the truth is, there's Lydia's and Linda's in this room right now. There are some people with great resources and maybe you're not rich financially, but you're rich relationally. Things are going well there. Maybe you're rich socially, you're popular, you're well-liked. And it is very hard for you to believe it when I say you are spiritually bankrupt before God. I mean, everybody likes you. Why wouldn't God? Look how blessed I am. God must really be pouring a lot of blessings on me. He must really find me a, a faithful servant. Really? Have you ever humbled yourself and acknowledged that your worship has not been exclusive? That your soul is impoverished? Have you ever taken off the external beauty and seen the filthiness of your soul? And the one remedy that God has provided for that? Have you been baptized? If not, at the end of this service, there's going to be pastors here. They would love to receive you, to talk to you about these things, and to schedule your baptism as one that would say, my only hope of heaven is not what I've done, but it's what Jesus has done. He who was rich became poor so that we who are poor could become spiritually rich. And there are some of you here that 
if the truth was known, you've been abused, hurt, exploited, mistreated. It's not, it's not, not been great for you. And it's very hard for you to trust what I'm saying because everybody you've ever trusted has hurt you. You see yourself? Why don't you come and trust the only one who is good, the only one who is gracious. You can get a brand new start. You can be set free from your spiritual bondage. I'd like us to stand. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, and nobody looking around. And in this moment, who do you see? You see yourself? Do you see those that you will encounter this week that may be in those categories? Lord, I pray that in this moment you would speak to our hearts. God, for some whose hearts are closed, would you open it right now? Those that are resisting, those that are unwilling to let go of pride or respectability in order to acknowledge that there's nothing in us that would draw you to us. God, would you show us the the offer of salvation through Christ? Open our eyes, open our hearts. God, would you give us the grace to lift up our eyes and to see those that are in these categories that we traffic in every day. Give us boldness and courage to open our mouths so that you can open hearts. We pray in Jesus' name.